Chapter twenty five of Children of the Ghetto by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter twenty five for Old Lang Syne. The learned say that Passover was a spring festival even before it was associated with the redemption from Egypt, but there is not much nature to worship in the ghetto and the historical elements of the festival swamp all the others. Passover still remains the most picturesque of the three festivals, with its entire transmogrification of things culinary, its thorough taboo of leaven. The audacious archaeologist of the thirtieth century may trace back the origin of the festival to the spring cleaning, the annual revel of the English housewife, for it is now that the ghetto whitewashes itself, and scrubs itself, and paints itself, and pranks itself, and purifies its pans in a baptism of fire. Now, too, the publican gets into himself a white sheet, and suspends it at his door, and proclaims that he sells kosher rum by permission of the chief rabbi. Now the confectioner exchanges his stuffed monkeys and his bowlers and his jam-puffs and his cheesecakes for unleavened palavas and worsted balls and almond-cakes. Time was when the Passover dietary was restricted to fruit and meat and vegetables, but year by year the cycle is expanding, and it should not be beyond the reach of ingenuity to make bread itself Passoverian. It is now that the pious shopkeeper, whose store is tainted with leaven, sells his business to a friendly Christian, buying it back at the conclusion of the festival. Now the Schlotten Shamus is busy from morning to night, filling up charity forms, artistically multiplying the poor man's children and dividing his rooms. Now is a holocaust made of a people's bread-crumbs, and now is the national salutation changed to, How do the Mozzas agree with you? Half of the race growing facetious, and the other half finical over the spotted Passover cakes. It was on the evening preceding the opening of Passover that Esther Ansell set forth to purchase the shillings worth of fish in Petticoat Lane, involuntarily storing up in her mind vivid impressions of the bustling scene. It is one of the compensations of poverty that it allows no time for mourning. Daily duty is the poor man's nepenthe. Esther and her father were the only two members of the family upon whom the death of Benjamin made a deep impression. He had been away so long from the home that he was the merest shadow to the rest. But Moses bore the loss with resignation, his emotions discharging themselves in the daily Kaddish. Blent with his personal grief was a sorrow for the commentaries lost to Hebrew literature by his boy's premature transference to paradise. Esther's grief was more bitter and defiant. All the children were delicate, but this was the first time death had taken one. The meaningless tragedy 
of Benjamin's end shook the child's soul to its depths. Poor lad! How horrible to be lying cold and ghastly beneath the winter snow! What had been the use of all his long preparations to write great novels? The name of Ansell would now become ingloriously extinct. She wondered whether our own would collapse, and secretly felt it must. And then what of the hopes of worldly wealth she had built on Benjamin's genius? Alas, the emancipation of the Ansells from the yoke of poverty was clearly postponed. To her and her alone must the family now look for deliverance. Well, she would take up the mantle of the dead boy and fill it as best she might. She clenched her little hands in iron determination. Moses Ansell knew nothing either of her doubts or her ambitions. Work was still plentiful three days a week, and he was unconscious he was not supporting his family in comparative affluence. But even with Esther the incessant grind of school life and the quasi-motherhood speedily rubbed away the sharper edges of sorrow, though the custom prohibiting obvious pleasures during the year of mourning went in no danger of transgression, for poor little Esther gadded neither to children's balls nor to theatres. Her thoughts were full of the prospects of Piscine bargains as she pushed her way through a crowd so closely wedged and lit up by such a flare of gas from the shops and such streamers of flames from the barrows that the cold wind of early April lost its sting. Two opposing currents of heavy-laden pedestrians were endeavouring in their progress to occupy the same strip of pavement at the same moment, and the laws of space kept them blocked till they yielded to its remorseless conditions. Rich and poor elbowed one another. Ladies in satins and furs were jammed against wretched-looking foreign women with their heads swathed in dirty handkerchiefs. Rough, red-faced English betting men struggled good-humouredly with their greasy kindred from over the North Sea, and a sprinkling of Christian yokels surveyed the Jewish hucksters and chapmen with amused superiority. For this was the night of nights, when the purchases were made for the festival, and great ladies of the West, leaving behind their daughters who played the piano and had a subscription at Mudie's, came down to the beloved lane to throw off that veneer of refinement and plunge gloveless hands in barrels where pickled cucumbers weltered in their own rustle, and to pick fat, juicy olives from the rich-heaped tubs. Ah, me! What tragic comedy lay behind the transient happiness of these sensuous faces, laughing and munching with the shamelessness of schoolgirls! For to-night they need not hanker in silence after the flesh-pots of Egypt. To-night they could laugh and talk over Oilova Shalom times peace be upon him times with their old cronies, and loosen the stays of social ambition 
even while they dazzled the ghetto with the splendours of their get-up and the halo of the west end whence they came it was a scene without parallel on the history of this world this phantasmagoria of grubs and butterflies met together for old lang syne in their beloved hatching-place such violent contrasts of wealth and poverty as might be looked for in romantic gold-fields or unsettled countries were evoked quite naturally amid a colourless civilization by a people with an incurable talent for the picturesque hallo can that be you betsy some grizzled shabby old man would observe in innocent delight to mrs arthur montmorency why it is so i never would have believed my eyes lord what a fine woman you've grown and so your little betsy who used to bring her father's coffee in a brown jug when he and i stood side by side in the lane he used to sell slippers next to my cutlery stall for eleven years dear dear how time flies to be sure then betsy montmorency's creamy face would grow scarlet under the gas-jets and she would glower and draw her sables around her and look around involuntarily to see if any of her kensington friends were within earshot another betsy montmorency would feel bohemian for this occasion only and would receive old acquaintances greeting effusively and pass the old phrases and bywords with a strange sense of stolen sweets while yet a third betsy montmorency a finer spirit this and worthier of the name would cry to a betsy jacobs is that you betsy how are you how are you i'm so glad to see you won't you come and treat me to a cup of chocolate at bonds just to show you haven't forgot a lot of shalom times and then having thus thrown the responsibility of standoffishness on the poorer betsy the montmorency would launch into recollections of those good old peace be upon him times till the grub forgot the splendours of the caterpillar in a joyous resurrection of ancient scandals but few of the montmorencies whatever their species left the ghetto without pressing bits of gold into their half reluctant palms in shabby back rooms where old friends or poor relatives moulded overhead the stars burned silently but no one looked up at them underfoot lay the thick black veil of mud which the lane never lifted but none looked down on it it was impossible to think of aught but humanity in the bustle and confusion in the cram and crush in the wedge and the jam in the squeezing and shouting in the hubbub and medley such a jolly rampant screaming fighting maddening jostling polyglot quarrelling laughing broth of a vanity fair mendicants vendors buyers gossips showmen all swelled the roar here's your cakes all yon tovdick yon tovdick braces best braces all yon tovdick only a shillin it's the rav's orders mum 
all legs of muttons must be porged or my license cowcumbers cowcumbers now's your chance the best trousers gentlemen cost me as sure as i stand on your own head you old abba canvas abba my old man's been under an operation hokey pokey yon tovdick hokey pokey yon tovdick get out of the way can't you by your life and my betsy gold bless you mister thousand a year shall you live eat the best motters only fourpence and the bones must go with ma'am i've cut it as lean as possible charosis charosis marur marur charain pesach dich come and have a glass of old tom along o me sonny fine place here you are oi where's your pluck s'elp me bob yom tovdick yom tovdick only a bob jack steak and half a pound of fat slap in the eye if you god bless you remember me to jacob shank me a halfpenny mrs lieben mrs crine lord sal how you've altered ladies here you are i give you my word sir the fish will be home before you painted in the best style for a tanner a spoonge mister i've cut a slice of this melon for you she's dead poor thing peace be upon him yon tovdick yon tovdick three bob for one purse containing a real live tattooed indian a born in the african archipelago walk up this way for the dwarf that will speak and dance and a sing three lambs a penny three lemons a stibber for a poor blind man yon tovdick yon tovdick yon tovdick and in this last roar common to so many of the mongers the whole babel would often blend for a moment and be swallowed up re-emerging anon in its broken multiplicity everybody esther knew was in this crowd she met them all sooner or later in wentworth street amid dead cabbage leaves and mud and refuse and orts and offal stood the woebegone meckish offering his puny sponges and wooing the charitable with grinning grimaces tempered by epileptic fits at judicious intervals a few inches off his wife in costly sealskin jacket purchased salmon with a made veil manner compressed in a corner was shoshi schmendrick his coat-tails yellow with the yolks of dissolving eggs from a bag in his pocket he asked her frantically if she had seen a boy whom he had hired to carry home his codfish and his fowls and explained that his missus was busy in the shop and had delegated to him the domestic duties it is probable that if mrs schmendrick formerly the widow of finkelstein ever received these dainties she found her good man had purchased fish artificially inflated with air and fowls fattened with brown paper hearty sam abrams the base chorister whose genial countenance spread sunshine for yards around stopped esther and gave her a penny further she met her teacher miss miriam hyams and curtsied to her for esther was not of those who jeeringly called teacher and master according to sex after her superiors 
two of the victims longed for Elisha's influence over bears. Later on she was shocked to see her teacher's brother piloting bonny Bessie Sugarman through the thick of the ferment. Crushed between two barrows she found Mrs. Belkovitch and Fanny, who were shopping together, attended by Pesach Weingott, all carrying piles of purchases. "'Esther, if you see my Becky in the crowd, tell her where I am,' said Mrs. Belkovitch. "'She's with one of her chosen young men. I'm so feeble I can hardly crawl around, and my Becky ought to carry home the cabbages. She has well-matched legs, not one a thick one, and one a thin one.' Around the fishmongers the press was great. The fish-trade was almost monopolized by English Jews—blond, healthy-looking fellows with brawny bare arms, who were approached with dread by all but the bravest foreign Jewesses. Their scale of prices and politeness varied with the status of the buyer. Esther, who had an observant eye and ear for such things, often found amusement standing unobtrusively by. Tonight there was the usual comedy awaiting her enjoyment. A well-dressed dame came up to Uncle Abe's stall, where half a dozen lots of fishy miscellanea were spread out. "'A good evening, madam. Cold night, but fine. That lot? Well, you're an old customer, and fish are cheap to-day, so I can let you have them for a sovereign. Eighteen? Well, it's hard, but—boy, oh, take the ladies' fish. Thank you. Good evening.' "'How much that?' says a neatly-dressed woman, pointing to a precisely similar lot. "'Oh, can't take less than nine bob. Fish are dear to-day. You won't get anything cheaper in the lane, by God you won't. Five shillings, by my life and my children's life, they cost me more than that. So sure as I stand here and—well, come, uh, give me seven and six and they're yours. You can't afford more. Well, up your old apron, old girl. I'll make it out of the rich. By my life and mine, you've got a metzia there." Here old Mrs. Schmendrick, Shosh's mother, came up, a rich paisley shawl over her head in lieu of a bonnet. Lane women who went about without bonnets were on the same plane as lane men who went out without collars. One of the terrors of the English fishmongers was that they required the customers to speak English, thus fulfilling an important educative function in the community. They allowed a certain percentage of jargon words, for they themselves took licenses in this direction, but they professed not to understand pure Yiddish. "'Abram, how much for this lot?' said old Mrs. Schmendrick, turning over a third similar heap, and feeling the fish all over. "'Paws off!' said Abraham roughly. Look here. I know the tricks of you Polikes. I'll name you the lowest price. I won't stand a farthing's batting. I'll lose by you, but you ain't going to worry me. Eight bob. There. Avramki, take elevenpence. Elevenpence, by God, said Uncle Abe, desperately tearing his hair. I knew it and seizing a huge place by the tail, he whirled it around and struck Mrs. Schmendrick full in the face, shouting, "'Take that, you old witch! Sling your hook or I'll murder you!' 
"'Thou dog!' shrieked Mrs. Schmendrick, falling back on the more copious resources of her native idiom. "'A schwarze Jarafsi! Mayst thy swell and die! May the hand that struck me rot away! May thou be burned alive! Thy father was a Gonif, and thou art a Gonif, and thy whole family a Gonofim! May Pharaoh's ten plagues!' There was little malice at the back of it all. The mere imaginative exuberance of a race whose early poetry consisted of saying things over twice. Uncle Abraham menacingly caught up the place, crying, "'May I be struck dead on the spot! If you ain't gone in one second I won't answer for the consequences. Now clear off!' "'Come, Avramkeller,' said Mrs. Schmendrick, dropping suddenly from invective to insinuativeness. "'Take fourpence! Schmar, Benny! Fourteen shivers a lot of gelt!' "'Are you a-going?' cried Abraham in a terrible rage. Ten bobs my price now!' "'Avromka, no, Zog! Fourteen pence apenny! I'm a poor woman here! Fifteen pence!' Abraham seized her by the shoulders and pushed her toward the wall where she cursed picturesquely. Esther thought it was a bad time to attempt to get her own shillings worth. She fought her way towards another fishmonger. There was a kindly, weather-beaten old fellow with whom Esther had often chaffered job-lots when fortune smiled on the Ansells. Him, to her joy, Esther perceived a stack of gunards on his improvised slab and in imagination smelt herself frying them. Then a great shock of sudden icy douche traversed her frame. Her heart seemed to stand still, for when she put her hand to her pocket to get her purse, she found but a thimble, and a slate pencil, and a cotton handkerchief. It was some minutes before she could or would realize the truth that the four and sevenpence halfpenny on which so much depended, had gone. Groceries and unleavened cakes Charity had given, raisin wine had been preparing for days, but fish and meat and all the minor accessories of a well-ordered Passover table, these were the prey of the pickpocket. A blank sense of desolation overcame the child, infinitely more horrible than that which she felt when she spilled the soup. The gunards she could have touched with her finger seemed far off, inaccessible. In a moment more they and all things were blotted out by a hot rush of tears, and she was jostled, as in a dream, hither and thither by the double stream of the crowd. Nothing since the death of Benjamin had given her so poignant a sense of the hollowness an uncertainty of existence. What would her father say, whose triumphant conviction that Providence had provided for his Passover was to be so rudely dispelled at the eleventh hour? Poor Moses! He had been so proud of having earned money to make a good yontov, and was more convinced than ever that, given a little capital to start with, he could build up a colossal business and now she would have to go home and spoil everybody's yontov.
and see the sour faces of her little ones around a barren Seder table. Oh, it was terrible! And the child wept piteously, unheeded in the block, unheard amid the Babel. End of chapter 25